Hello all and welcome to the Trip Sitters Podcast. My name is Rodrigo Arauz and I'm here with Rose Webb. Pleasure to be here talking about some fantastic fungi today. Yep, the Magical Mushroom Express. But more specifically, we'll be talking about the recent passing of Measure 109 in Oregon, which allows for medical use of psilocybin. With this new law, we thought it would be a great time to explore what psilocybin mushrooms are, people's experience with them, and the scientific evidence from research and doctors to prepare us for a trippy new world. And spring break in Oregon, of course. (laughs) And you know what? Before we start, this is a huge step for a lot of people. And I'm really happy that our society is progressing in this direction and beginning to see the benefits of things that we've demonized for so long, like marijuana and now psilocybin, which both come from nature. Yeah, and nature's our friend. So, Rose, can you tell me any more about Measure 109? Yeah, but actually, I was able to interview a scientist named Dr. Adie Ray from the Legacy Research Institute in Oregon, who explains it better than I ever could. And I'd like to clarify about that legalization versus a completely regulated framework for psychotherapy, which are two totally different things. And Oregon has actually done both this year. We've both decriminalized the possession of psilocybin for any purposes, but we have also, you know, begun building a framework for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. And those are two totally different things. And along those lines, one of the most interesting things I read about Measure 109 is that you don't need to be, quote, ill to take it. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Under Oregon law, a person could take the drug for spiritual reasons or if they're seeking a hallucinatory experience. But there will be a screening process in place so that people suffering from certain mental disorders would not be able to take it. Yeah, I think if you're going to introduce psilocybin in a medical setting, it can't be like a regular doctor visit where he just sends you your psilocybin prescription to your local CVS, right? But I mean, hopefully that's the direction we're heading in, right? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in your dreams, Rose. So what is a hallucinogen and psilocybin or shrooms specifically? And how would we take it in Oregon? Well, in a book written by a group of doctors and researchers at Duke University called Buzzed, they describe hallucinogens as drugs or compounds like acid or psilocybin in shrooms, but there are many, many more. And they change one's thought processes, mood, and perception depending on the dose. The effects of a usual dose begin to wear off after about six hours or so, but it could be intense to be in that state of mind for so long. And when I spoke with Dr. Ray, she explained how the compound is consumed in a facilitated session. In general, the way it's consumed in a therapeutic setting is not at all the same way that it is consumed in personal or shamanic or religious kind of setting. It really is a relationship between the two facilitators who are usually a male and a female whom the patient has already established a good rapport and clinical relationship with. The whole session is conducted in a really warm and inviting environment, very much like a living room. And, you know, the facilitators are present for the entire experience. But the most important thing about the therapeutic setting is the follow-up integration sessions. Or after the main metaphysical experience is had, the follow-up to take all of those information and insight and visions and whatever other experiences to try to make meaning of them and incorporate that experience into the ordinary waking reality, that is the most critical component of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Wow, sounds like a nice experience. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't make you see things per se. It just changes the way you process things. 
Well, that's sort of the big question here. We're not completely 100% sure what type of experience the compound gives you. But time and time again, people who undergo the psychedelic experience say it changes the way they perceive and process things. And the way we think about the world and interact with it is a big determinant of our mental well-being and health, which I think sort of brings us into the reason that we're talking about it today. Yeah, for sure. Psilocybin has been scientifically proven to provide rapid and long-lasting improvements in patient health. Studies in the UK, the Netherlands, and in the United States by institutions like Johns Hopkins and the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies out in Colorado have all claimed that under professional care, psilocybin may prove to be an effective one to two time treatment or cure for mental illnesses like depression. Dr. Reynolds, a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, recently wrote an editorial on a John Hopkins study that studied psilocybin's effects on depression. So the study published recently in JAMA Psychiatry from Johns Hopkins was a, an investigation of psilocybin-assisted supportive psychotherapy for clinical depression, or major depression as we call it. Many, if not all, of the participants in the trial appeared to have uh, chronic depression in many ways, an elegant study, very well done and clearly reported that used both an immediate exposure and a delayed exposure condition and carefully described the use of supportive psychotherapy before, during, and after exposure to psilocybin. What the investigators reported in the JAMA Psychiatry article was a rapid relief of depressive symptoms as a result of exposure, some of the difficult feelings and experiences that participants had while under the influence of psilocybin, and hence the need for supportive psychotherapy provided by, if you will, navigators to help uh, patients carefully navigate the experience of psilocybin exposure. Psilocybin therapy may also be especially intriguing for people who have not reacted well to any other type of treatment for mental disorders like severe anxiety. Yeah, and a lot of what we hear from anecdotal experiences from people who use psilocybin recreationally is that it makes you more aware, compassionate, and empathetic. So I was able to talk with two people who have overcome depression and anxiety in part due to, in their eyes, the effects of psilocybin, who can sort of describe the state of mind they're in. I personally, I took like a heavy mushroom trip after I had depression. When I went into it, I was like depressed and I faced a lot of demons. And then it was like a bad trip, quote unquote. But I came out of it on the other side completely free of my depression. Basically, it, it slows down time and it makes you appreciate everything so much more, especially the small details. Just going outside, watching the nature and seeing the world around you in a different way, it makes you kind of zone out a little bit of that dark cloud that's covering over your brain, which is the depression, and it kind of is a little sunlight in the sky, if that makes sense. So here's some of what Dr. Ray had to say about the proposed benefits from the research. 
it's far beyond anecdotal. We have many peer-reviewed studies. A lot of them have been conducted at Johns Hopkins. There's a big research group there that has been doing psilocybin research in terminal cancer patients and people that are experiencing, you know, suicidality and existential fear of death. The common theme with depression and anxiety and even addiction is getting stuck in suffering. And psilocybin seems to have an ability to break a person out of habitual patterns of suffering. And so there is a release of whatever brain pattern has caused a person to obsess over the past and be depressed or obsess about worrisome future, which is anxiety, or obsess about a substance which they have used as a crutch or a coping mechanism, breaking out of that pattern of suffering requires putting the brain into a state it has never been in before. It requires putting the brain into a state where it can recruit other networks and other neural connections and synapses that aren't typically online during our normal waking consciousness. So it's not surprising when you take the brain out of its default mode network, out of its cruise control, and you put it into an active pattern of brain activity that it's never experienced before, you're going to get a different result. We know that what's common among a lot of the classic psychedelics is that they often work on the serotonin receptors. Although we know that the serotonin receptors are a critical component of this experience, it is a very complicated story that we have just begun to, you know, see the tip of the iceberg. So there's been a ton of research and we know a bit about what it does and how it interacts with our bodies. It's really interesting to see how this fungus has been around since nearly the beginning of life on earth as we know it and can help us, but it hasn't been allowed to. There definitely needs to be more research that delves into the possible unintended effects and the type of people who should and shouldn't use it. Dr. Reynolds brought up this very issue regarding psych patients with past experience with suicidal ideation. Another thing, though, that I found interesting as a psychiatrist investigator was the elicitation of very strong feelings under the exposure of psilocybin. Some of these feelings were, were negative, uh, feelings of loneliness, feelings of hopelessness, feelings aroused from imagining one's own death. Such negative feelings are, are very important in terms of the safety of uh, psilocybin, whether the use of psilocybin would be appropriate in people with depression with more active suicidal ideation or past histories of suicide attempts. This is an example of an unanswered question. And it's going to be hard on the road moving forward because doctors and the general public have been told for decades about how dangerous these drugs are. And that's seen in the opposition by professionals who are scared about the supposed lack of sound research. Dr. Reynolds also elaborated as to the skepticism within the medical community. The skepticism, I think, is based upon the perceived need for more high-quality clinical trials. In my editorial, while I praise the, the study that was published from Hopkins and its sponsorship by crowdsource funding, I also called for greater investigation by federal agencies such as the National Institutes of Health to enable the conduct of larger 
trials that might be able to address questions more rigorously, such as safety and efficacy. On the other hand, the Food and Drug Administration, I think, has accorded psilocybin a breakthrough drug status, which means that its further scientific investigation and potential approval might be expedited. And yet, despite Dr. Reynolds' optimism, the voices of the opposition continue to gather. The Oregon Medical Association recently joined our opposition. They're also in opposition of Measure 109. The American Psychiatric Association is in opposition of Measure 109. So it's such early stages of research that we have no idea what could happen if it's going to interact with other medications or other medical conditions. So it's really in its infancy in terms of development and studying. Interestingly enough, though, I brought up this point to Dr. Ray, and I think she can debunk this lady. The thing that has always been difficult with psychedelic research is that so much of the therapy cannot be observed. This is what science is. It's a process of observing outcomes. It's a process of being able to measure what is happening. And the psychedelic experience is ineffable. It is impossible to describe. It is impossible to fit words to and try as we might. And there have been many people over the decades who have attempted to somehow record the psychedelic experience, the metaphysical experience. So that's what's made it really difficult for the Western scientific community to embrace is the inability to have that direct measurable evidence that we're used to with all other therapies. Despite the fact that we can't bring back evidence of the experience, what people describe happening to them, what they describe sensing and feeling, um, there is a high degree of reproducibility. There's a high degree of consensus and uniformity in the kinds of feelings and outcomes that people report report. When you come back from this kind of experience and integrate those thoughts and feelings and, and experiences into your normal, ordinary waking reality, that's when there is a profound ability for a fundamentally improved quality of life. Really good stuff. And you know what? People are going to do drugs anyways. Every day, people take drugs in unsupervised settings and can experience negative effects. But if research in other countries, research in the U.S., and anecdotal experiences from people all over the world say that this stuff is great and it can really help you, then it's definitely worth exploring. I like how you said that people are going to do these drugs anyways. I mean, yes, that's the point. Hello, I think that that fact debunks any opposition. When we legalize and regulate any substance, like psilocybin, we can make sure that it's being done in a safe setting with a licensed facilitator who is equipped to handle any negative effects. We can also negate the possibility of other harmful substances being in these drugs. And we can use the money that we get from psilocybin therapy services and sales to reinvest in research, facilities, patients, and doctors. Sounds like you have a game plan. Hopefully we'll see this as Measure 109 plays out in Oregon. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. But thanks for joining us. That's right. So let's get moving in the right direction. Before we go, I'd like to give a huge thank you to our interviewees, including Drs. A.D. Ray and Charles Reynolds, who taught us so much today. And we hope you learned something as well. If you have any questions, you can email us at thetripsitters at gmail.com. Again, that's thetripsitters with a Z at gmail.com. Until next time, we'd like to leave you with a few more words of wisdom from Dr. Ray. 
So it's really, it's difficult for people to let go of that fear of, oh, I'm gonna have a bad trip or I'm gonna be confronted with something scary. And it's kind of a really brave moment to say, I am going to voluntarily confront that fear. I am going to voluntarily confront that scary situation. I'm going to choose to lean into it because it is the greatest possible point from which I can learn, grow, and heal. That's a very brave thing. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to those fears and to face those dark parts of our consciousness.